Kristen Newman College is proud to present the 2008 Dr. Carroll Lecture Series. Today, Dr. Carroll will be speaking on Bonnie Prince Charlie. Let us begin. Welcome, everybody. Let's go ahead and begin with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. St. Columba, pray for us. St. Margaret of Scotland, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome to you all. It's great to see such a, a wonderful turnout here, so many young faces. Uh, for those of you who weren't here the first semester, it's good at the beginning of each semester to give a little introduction, although he really needs no introduction. But just in terms of background and review, Warren Hasty Carroll of the state of Maine was educated at Bates College and received the doctorate in history from Columbia University. His early career included positions at the Central Intelligence Agency, which throughout the history of the college has spawned all sorts of interesting rumors about the founding of the college and really were a branch of the federal government, which is not true, and other interesting things. And Dr. Carroll's headlights would rotate into machine guns and things like that. But anyway, uh, he worked as an analyst on Soviet propaganda. In 1968, pivotal year, when everyone was leaving the church, uh, Dr. Carroll converted to the Catholic Church under the influence of his wife and actual grace, and eventually the reception of sanctifying grace. Uh, he soon joined the staff of Triumph, a monthly Catholic journal of opinion founded by the late, great L. Brent Bozell. When Triumph and its summer program came to an end, Dr. Carroll determined to perpetuate its vision by founding a college where students could come and could breathe Catholic air. In September 1977, Christendom College opened its doors in Triangle, Virginia, from which it has since moved to this permanent location in Front Royal. Dr. Carroll founded Christendom College as a co-educational liberal arts undergraduate college in response to the Second Vatican Council's call for the formation of lay apostles. He served as the college president from the opening until 1985, and after that he served as chairman of the history department until his retirement in 2002. As you see, he still lectures, and we hope that he'll be able to continue to do this. At least you had a stretch for another 10 years, didn't you? Yeah. That's just great. I love that. All right. Dr. Carroll is also known for his many volumes illustrating a Catholic vision of history. His major work, which most of you are familiar with, is the multi-volume History of Christendom, the entity, not the college. Five volumes have been published to date, and they prevent a compelling narrative of the crucial events in Catholic history. He's also written a number of single-volume works which we have available in our bookstore. Uh, Rise and Fall of the Communist Revolution, which is the fruit of a lifelong study of uh, communism. Also, his history of Catholic Spain. Isabella of Spain, the Catholic Queen. Also, 1917, Red Banners, White Mantle. Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Conquest of Darkness and the Last Crusade. Uh, Dr. Carroll had a number of significant lectures that were part of the Christendom experience. The lecture on Palio, certain other great Catholic moments in history. Everyone who went to Christendom College in the early years was exposed to those lectures and deeply affected. One of those lectures we're going to get today, the topic is Bonnie Prince Charlie, the last Catholic King of English-speaking peoples. 
And uh, of course, there's a whole uh, number of beautiful Jacobite songs that have been woven around the whole story of Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, which we continue to sing here at the college on different occasions, including St. Patrick's Day. So without any further ado, let's give a warm welcome to our founding president in this, our 30th anniversary, Dr. Warren Carroll. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be able to lecture on Barney Prince Charlie, who's an old f a hero of mine. <clears throat> so we'll go right into it. Barney Charlie's gone away, far across the bounding main. Many's the heart will break in twa if you knew come knew come back again. Better love you cannot be. Will you know come back again? That was the song they sung for many years uh, in the bleak highlands of Scotland, where one island remains to this day 100% Catholic in honor of the last Catholic king of the English-speaking peoples, a bright blonde young man whom they called Bonnie Prince Charlie. The story of Prince Charles Edward Stuart and his attempt to regain the British throne of his fathers is one of the great romances of history, and it all actually happened. The Stuart kings were the rightful rulers of England. The last of them, James II, became Catholic and therefore was hounded out of Great Britain in a carnival of treason that would have shamed the Banana Republic. His own daughter and his best general both betrayed him. English Whig historians have called this the Glorious Revolution. I call it the Inglorious Revolution, which took place in 1688 when Dutch King William took over England and displaced James, who was given refuge by King Louis XIV of France, William's enemy. King James fled with his newborn son, who was the rockabye baby of the famous nursery rhyme and became the father of Bonnie Prince Charlie. His mother was the beautiful blonde Clementina Sobieski, daughter of the Polish hero King John Sobieski, who had saved Vienna from the Turks in 1683. She was a devout Catholic who bore the feminine form of the name of the reigning Pope Clement XII. Her son inherited her spectacular coloring and was called by his followers in Scotland, Bonnie Prince Charlie. He was the last Catholic king of the English-speaking peoples and the last native king of British family. The history of the world would have been changed out of all present recognition if he had won, as he almost did, and might well have. I have called Bonnie Prince Charlie the last knight of Christendom. He was Catholic, born on the last day of 1720, raised in Rome, and received an audience by Pope Clement XII, for whom his mother was named, when he was only six years old. The Pope questioned him about the Catholic Catechism and his understanding of it, and was satisfied with his answers. About this time, his father's secretary, James Edgar, wrote of him, quote, The Prince improves daily, in body and mind, and to the admiration and joy of everybody. As to his studies, he reads English now and has begun to learn to write. He speaks English perfectly well, and the French and Italian very little worse. He is most alert in all his exercises, such as shooting. You would be surprised to see him dance. Nobody does it better, 
and he bore his part at the balls of the carnival as if he were already a man, end quote. His cousin, the Duke of Lyria, son of Charles's father's half-brother, the Duke of Berwick, waxed still more eloquent, thinking him, quote, the most ideal prince he had ever seen, a marvel of beauty, dexterity, grave, and almost supernatural address, end quote. Charles's biographer, Carolee Erickson, adds, quote, his manner and conversation were bewitching, his charm infectious. There was none of his father's stiff correctness about him, no artificial politeness, no sense he was playing a role that he had been carefully coached to play by his elders. He was quite simply a naturally engaging young person whom those around him could not help but adore. They were moved to pay him homage because of something far more compelling, compelling than rank, a force of personality that was ill-defined but unmistakable. That unusual gifts and accomplishments should accompany this force of personality seemed perfectly appropriate. The prince grew into a precocious athlete and huntsman. He was an excellent shot, his aim true enough to shoot birds off the roof and to split a rolling ball with a crossbow belt three times in succession. No porter's child in the country, wrote one of his tutors, has stronger legs and arms. By the age of six or seven, he was speaking Italian, French, and English, the latter with a noticeable accent, and was learning to read and write. He had a quick mind, but little aptitude for study, preferring riding and shooting, and resisting his tutor's attempts at discipline." End quote. Young Prince Charles was close to both his parent, parents, but probably closer to his mother. In January 1735, she died weakened by fasting, exhorting her children, quote, never to desert the Catholic faith, not for all the kingdoms of the world, none of which could ever be compared to the kingdom of heaven, end quote. In 1736, Prince Charles traveled to Milan and Venice, where he said, obviously thinking of his royal destiny, had I soldiers, I would not be here now, but wherever I could serve my friends, end quote. Prince Charles had not liked life in Rome. To this hardy, adventurous young man, it seemed too soft, too tame. He longed for the great test he knew was coming. In September 1740, he wrote to the clans of Scotland, promising soon to deliver them from the yoke of German George, who now ruled Great Britain because of a distant dynastic connection, though he did not speak one word of English. That's the grandfather of George III, from whom we gained our independence. In June 1742, Prince Charles was visited by the newly elected Pope, Benedict XIV. Here is a description of Prince Charles Edward Stuart in 1742 on the eve of his epic adventure. Quote, tall above the common stature, his limbs, limbs are cast in the most exact mold. His complexion has in it somewhat of uncommon delicacy. All his features are perfectly regular and well-turned, and his eyes the finest I ever saw. But that which shines most in him, and renders him without exception the most surprisingly handsome person of this age, is the dignity that accompanies every gesture. There is indeed such an unspeakable majesty diffused throughout his whole mien, such as is impossible to have any idea of without seeing, and strikes those that, ha those that have with such an awe 
as will not suffer them to look on him for any time unless he emboldens them by his great affability. End quote. No wonder the Scots called him Bonnie Prince Charlie. If Charles were to succeed in his daring venture, he must have the aid of France, Scotland's old ally. The real ruler of France is the death of King Louis XIV, who had sheltered Charles's father, the exiled Catholic King James II of England, Edwin Cardinal Fleury, regent for Louis XIV's very young successor, his great-grandson, Louis XV. Cardinal Fleury was very anti-English. In 1743, Cardinal Fleury died at the age of 90. By the end of that year, the French had begun full-scale planning for an expedition to Great Britain to restore the Stuarts. But they told Prince Charles their plans did not include him. But Prince Charles would not be left out. On the night of January 9, 1744, after talking all through the night with his dispossessed father, whom he was never to see again, <clears throat> he galloped away. By February 8th, he had given everyone the slip, and all Europe had lost track of him. By April 27th, he was at sea, on his way to Scotland, with the seven men of Moidart, seven men against the entire British Empire. These included three Scotsmen, the Marquis of Tullibardine, old and in poor health, Aeneas and Sir John MacDonald, members of one of the principal Highland clans of the Western Isles, and four Irishmen, George Kelly, Charles' secretary and close personal friend, quote, a tough and doughty warrior, a man of immense willpower and determination who had spent his life in the service of the Stuarts, end quote, Sir Thomas Sheridan and Francis Strickland, also longtime servants and companions of the Prince, and John O'Sullivan, quote, a carry man who had a long and distinguished military career, end quote. Prince Charles had committed himself once and for all. On June 22nd, he and his seven had embarked on the 16-gun French frigate Dutel, and he wrote to his father, along with asking the Pope's blessing on his enterprise, quote, let what will happen, the stroke is struck, and I have taken a firm resolution to conquer or die, and stand my ground so long as I shall have one man left with me, end quote. In addition to the seven men of Moidart, Prince Charles had with him on the Dutel his chaplain, Abbe Butler, the master of the ship, a French slaver named Antoine Walsh, Aeneas MacDonald's clerk, Duncan Buchanan, an Italian named Michael de Betsosi, long in Prince Charles' service and sent specially by his father, and most interesting and significant, another Scotsman named Donald Cameron, called Gentle Lockheel, who had served as chief of the important Cameron clan. On July 20th, 1745, Dutel with another French ship, the Elizabeth, encountered the British warship, um, the Lion, and fought her. This might have upset all Prince Charles's plans, because Elizabeth carried the arms and ammunition for Charles's proposed rising in Scotland. But contrary to expectation, no alarm was given, and the rising proceeded as though this encounter had never happened. On August 3rd, Prince Charles sighted Scotland for the first time, the all-Catholic Isle of Barra, 
which I mentioned earlier, whose laird was away, and later in the day, the prince and his party landed on the bleak Hebridean island of Eriske. In the words of Frank MacLean, quote, the green and gray island of Eriske, with its blanched white sands, racked by violent winds and rain, even in summer, would have demoralized 99 out of every 100 men born and raised in Rome. The cruel climate alone would have been too much for the average Roman. Here, too, was poverty on a scale which would have shocked citizens of the papal states. The impoverished clansmen lived on a diet of milk and whey, eked out with fish and seafood. The dark and dank bothies were windowless and suffused with smoke from the damp peat on the hearth. Yet the prince soon made good his boast that he had never cared for Rome, as a society too soft and decadent for a true warrior. If he could not yet exercise his great charisma, since the Catholic inhabitants of Eriske spoke Urs or Scots Gaelic, he could show them which he did not speak. He could show them that he was a hero. Bearded and unshaven, wearing the dress of a student for the priesthood at the Scots College in Rome, the prince settled down for his first night on Scottish soil. It was a wet and windy night. They were lodged in the cottage of Angus MacDonald, a poor crofter. There was no bread, not even a grain of meal, but they cooked flounder over the peat fire. It was by fire, or rather by smoke, that the prince's first ordeal came. Since there was no chimney in the bothy, but only a hole in the roof, the lungs accustomed to the groves of Cisterna and the forests of Navarre soon protested. The prince was forced to make frequent trips to the door to inhale fresh air. Eventually, Angus MacDonald, not knowing he was dealing with his rightful prince, but seeing only a scruffy cleric, burst out with irritation in Gaelic, What the plague is the matter with that fellow that he can neither sit nor stand still and neither keep within nor without doors? End quote. From the Isle of Eriskay, Prince Charles sailed that evening to Loch Namoam the lock of the caves, to quote from Forster's biography of Bonnie Prince Charlie. Quote, creeping up the lock as far as she could get, the Dutel was soon enveloped by a different kind of landscape from the barren islands. Even in the dark, the giant mountains could be felt, felt as well as seen, and the scale of the kingdom he, Prince Charles, had come to reclaim made itself felt." End quote. Prince Charles stayed at the tiny village of Borrowdale for the next two weeks, becoming familiar with the unique Highland culture of Scotland, well described by Carolee Erickson. Quote, travel in the Highlands was nearly impossible. No carriage could climb the mountains. Indeed, the going was too rough even for horses, and most travel was on foot. Beyond the inconvenience and sheer arduousness of going even short distances, visitors were put off by the nature of Highland life itself. There were no cities or towns, no commerce, virtually no agriculture. The itinerant Highlanders devoted themselves entirely, it seemed to outsiders, to following herds of emaciated black cattle through the mountains, nearly starving in winter and reviving briefly in the chill northern summer. The hardihood of the Highlanders was inexhaustible. The clan chiefs and their retainers 
recreated themselves by taking to the high hills in winter, oblivious of snow, to hunt for game. For days at a time they scorned shelter, sleeping on the frozen ground wrapped in their plaids, eating the game they killed, and drinking the few bottles of whiskey they brought along with them. The common folk spent the winters in mean sod and turf cottages, sleeping on bare boards with heath or straw beneath them. They managed to subsist on fish and game, and on what the cattle provided, not only milk and butter and cheese, but the thick pudding made from the blood of cows, boiled and solidified. Hardy as they were, people and cattle alike became enfeebled during the snowy winters, and many did not survive to face another dark spring. Due to technical difficulties, the remainder of the talk will be read by Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. It was a deeply, if primitively, religious society which understood the Most Holy Trinity. In his description of the Western Isles of Scotland, Martin, himself a Highland, recorded his observation on a tour of the islands in 1703. Martin found the Western Isles to be a charmed world where people repeated the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed in their chapel on Sunday morning. Whenever Martin put to sea in the course of his journey, the steersman and the crew of the boat recited a liturgy of blessing. Let us bless our ship, the steersman called out, and the crew answered, God the Father bless her. Let us bless our ship, the steersman called again, and this time the answer came, Jesus Christ, bless her. A third blessing invoked the blessing of the Holy Ghost, after which came more questions and answers, ending with the sound resounding cry, We do not fear anything. End quote. They did not indeed fear nothing. They were probably the best fighting men in Christendom. At Borodale, Prince Charles met Hugh MacDonald of Armadale on the Isle of Skye to the north, whose stepdaughter Flora was later to save his life and found shattering disappointment when Norman MacLeod of Skye and Alexander MacDonald of Slate, both of whom had previously promised to support him, now refused to join his uprising, even though he had already ordered the Detuel unload of its arms. Astonished, that he should propose a revolt while bringing only seven men with him, they urged him to go home. Charles memorably replied, I am come, sir, and I will entertain no notion at all of returning to that place from whence I come. I am persuaded my faithful Highlanders will stand by me. Quote. A young man named Ranald MacDonald already had done so, telling Prince Charles, Quote, I will follow my rightful prince, though no other man in the highland should draw his sword. I am ready to die for you. The clan Ranald MacDonalds were a Catholic clan, and Prince Charles at once commissioned young Ranald as commander of their regiment in the Rising. On August 19, 1745, gentle Lochiel joined Prince Charles Rising, confounding all who thought he would be more cautious. But it was not surprising to anyone who understood his Cameron heritage. His grandfather was the famous Sir Owen Cameron, who went back to the great Montrose, the noblest defender of King Charles I Stuart, whose heroism Clan Cameron has always exalted. 
Lochiel had fought beside his father, following the bonnet of Bonnie Dundee, in the heroic downhill charge at Killacranky in the cause of King James II. Lochiel himself was a Catholic convert, and had written a recapitulation of all his clan had done in the Stuart cause since the days of Montrose. Montrose, the forever loyal defender of a King Charles I, and he told his clansmen always to stay loyal to the descendants of James II. He had grown up in his grandfather's mighty shadow. Lochiel joined Prince Charles at the great occasion of the raising of the royal standard at Glenfinian. Prince Charles had told him, In a few days I will raise the royal standard and proclaim to the people of Britain that Charles Stuart has come over to claim the throne of his ancestors or to die in the attempt. Lochiel's answer was, quote, I'll share the fate of my prince, and so shall every man over whom nature or fortune has given me any power. Baron Porcelli says of Glenfinian, quote, The spot was well chosen. Some 18 miles west of Fort William, it forms a narrow valley bounded by high and rocky mountains through which flows the river Finian. The locality is very secluded and sparsely populated. End quote. I have been to Glenfinian, where the great rally happened, it is a place I will never forget. In the glorious words of that stirring Scots song of this uprising, the Pibrock, Sound the Pibrock loud and high, play John O'Grouts to the Isle of Skye, let all your clans with battle cry, rise and follow Charlie. By Darklock shield they make their stand, that small devoted Highland band. They swore to fight with heart and hand and follow their royal Charlie. At Glenfinian, Prince Charles formally proclaimed his father king and unfurled the great banner of the House of Stuart with red silk and a white center and read the king's commission to his son, drafted in Rome, proclaiming Charles regent of Great Britain. It was followed by toast to his health in captured brandy spoken in Scotch Gaelic. From Glenfinian, Prince Charles went south to Perth, where he, quote, held the spectators spellbound by his dancing skills as he performed a Strathspey minuet. End quote. Several hundred more clansmen joined him in Perth. Now his money was all gone, but his brother reached him late in August with money from the Pope. Charles marched past the great fort at Stirling in the center of Scotland and camped at Falkirk, where William Wallace, hero of the movie Braveheart, which some of you have seen, had won his greatest victory. On September 16, 1745, Prince Charles called on the city of Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, to submit to him, and it did submit on the following day. The English were counting on the commander of their army in Scotland, a man named John Cope, to stop him. But Cope, described as a dressy, finical little man, whose fastidiousness and good breeding were more striking than his military capabilities, was no match for Charlie and his Highlanders with their great broad swords called claymores. At the Battle of Preston Pans, just a few days later, the Highlanders charged and routed Cope at dawn, giving rise to a Scots legend, echoed more than a century later when Scots Highlanders 
of another generation charge the blood-stained killers of the Indian mutiny in the dark heart of pagan India with the cry of, Hey, Johnny Cope, hey, ye walkin' yet. Preston Pans was a very bloody battle. After it, in the first of many demonstrations of his chivalry, which justified calling him the last knight of Christendom, Charles said he was sorry that so many of his subjects had been killed or wounded. On September 22, 1745, the only Sunday he spent in Edinburgh, Charles showed that he had learned from his grandfather the value of religious toleration, which James II had always both preached and practiced, telling the city's many Presbyterian ministers to conduct their Sunday services as usual. On October 14th, a special envoy from Louis XV of France, the Marquis de Guy, arrived in Scotland, promising help to the Prince Charles. On October 30th, the Prince announced, at an acrimonious council of war, that he was committed to the invasion and conquest of England, as well as of Scotland. He was in England early in November, and on November 16th, proclaimed James III at Market Cross in Carlisle, in the north of England. Carlyle surrendered to him on November 18th as he rode into the city on a white horse. The next day Prince Charles made triumphant entry into Manchester where a whole regiment was enlisted. On December 6th Charles reached Derby in England only about a hundred miles from London. That day was called Black Friday because of a financial panic in London caused by the approach of Charlie's army. But it was the blackest of days for the prince and his adherents because it was then that the fateful decision was made to abandon the invasion of England and retreat to Scotland. Charles deferred, even when all his instincts told him to press on, to the advice of Lord George Murray, his most experienced general, who was disturbed by reports of large English armies ahead. Frank McLinn says of this critical decision, quote, The debate about Derby can never be satisfactorily resolved. The fact remains, as one historian of the issue has shrewdly pointed out, that the Scottish leaders would never have agreed to continue to London, whatever the cogency of the prince's arguments. States of mind were to be all-important after Derby. The prince, who had tracked at the head of his army on the way south, now rode depressed and sullen on horseback in the rear. He never truly recovered from the trauma of Derby. Lochiel agreed with Charles. It's all over. We shall never come again. And the Irishman Sheridan, one of the seven men of Mordart, the army began its march northward in darkness. So it was not until daylight came that the soldiers realized they had turned tail. Frank McLinn says, Ululations and cries of despair rent the air. Some clansmen threw down their arms in disgust and vowed to quit the army once safely crossed the border. Murray of Broughton's wife was seen crying like a baby. As the clansmen's discipline declined, the insolence of the English townspeople increased. On the march south, the Jacobite army looked like a possible victor, the prince, a possible future king. On the retreat, no such illusions could be entertained. Cumberland, brother of the German king of England, and Wade, now King George's general, replacing Cope, 
held the whip hand, and the onlookers knew it. The army had to put up with sniper fire and the summary execution of stragglers. On the last day of 1745, Prince Charles recrossed the Scotch frontier. During much of January 1746, he lay ill at Bannockburn, where Robert the Bruce had won the freedom of Scotland so long ago. He was nursed by Clementina Walkinishaw, whose Jacobite father had named her for Charles' mother. At Falkirk, site of the triumph of William Wallace, Braveheart, centuries before, Prince Charles, on January 17th, in driving rain, defeated the hostile army of Hangman Holly with a claymore charge. The winter weather was terrible. Charles caught first pneumonia, then scarlet fever. On March 25th, the French ship bringing aid and gold to Prince Charles went aground in Pentland Firth, north of Scotland, and was captured by the English. The French then told Prince Charles that all plans for a French expedition to help him had been abandoned. On April 8th, the British army, under the Hanoverian king's brother, William, Duke of Cumberland, arrived at Inverness in Scotland, closely trailed by Lochiel's Camerons. The stage was being set for Bonnie Prince Charlie's final disaster on the field of Culloden. This happened on April 16th. 1746, when a tired and hungry Jacobite army marched to a battlefield which might have been made to order for Cumberland's British artillery, which the Highlanders had no experience in fighting, and which could not be cowed by their favorite tactic, the Claymore Charge. The Frenchman de Glee, and, to do him justice, Lord George Murray, strongly objected to the choice of battlefield. The brave Scotchmen were cut to pieces though they fought with magnificent, absolutely magnificent courage in the face of great odds. Gentle Lochiel was shot in both legs. Some of their last fights entered Scott legend. Giles McBean of Clan Chatton, badly wounded and with his back to a wall, went down swinging his claymore and killed 13 of the enemy before cavalry horses trampled him. Robert McGilvray, Trapped and weaponless except for the wooden shaft, he wrenched off a peat cart with which he killed seven of his pursuers. It was the last battle ever fought on British soil. The song, The Peabrock, says it best. By dark Culloden's field of gore, hark how they cry, claymore, claymore. Bravely they fight, can they do more than die for Royal Charlie? No more will see such deeds again. Deserted now each highland glen, and lonely kilns are o'er the men who fought and died for Charlie. I have been to Culloden. Of all the many battlefields I have seen, it is the saddest. Cumberland was given the task after the Battle of Culloden of destroying Scotch highland culture, at which he succeeded very well. The wearing of highland dress was prohibited by law, and bagpipes were banned as weapons of war. The Scots called Cumberland the Butcher, a title he amply deserved. Admiring ladies in London named a flower for him, Sweet William, his name being William. The Scots retaliated by affixing his name to a noxious weed, Stinking Billy. As it turned out, 
It would have been better for Bonnie Prince Charlie if his body, too, had lain under one of those clan memorial kilns. In the dark, declining years of the rest of his life, he probably wished sometimes it had been. In the immediate aftermath of the decisive defeat at Culloden, with a reward of 30,000 pounds on his head, an enormous sum, more than a lifetime's earnings in the highlands, he voyaged twice across the Minch, the strait which separates the Western Isles, the Hebrides, from the mainland of Scotland, and had to spend four days and nights on an uninhabited island. On May 17, 1746, when a starving boy appeared and asked the fugitive prince and his party for food and was rebuked by his companions, Charles reminded them that Christ told us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. He returned to Borodale on South Oost Island and met Flora MacDonald again, who took him over the sea to Skye, disguised in women's clothes, as her servant Betty Burke. There they parted. Flora MacDonald later emigrated to America, where she incredibly was a British loyalist because she was always a monarchist. On July 1, 1746, Bonnie Prince Charlie made his way from Skye through a storm to Rasse Island, which Butcher Cumberland had already devastated. Not a single Scotchman who helped or sheltered Prince Charles gave any information about him to the British authorities, disdaining the immense reward, a happy contrast to what happened to Montrose, who was captured after being betrayed to the English by a Scotchman. Eventually, on July 22nd, Donald MacDonald of Glengarry took the prince to safety in Glenmoriston, where seven men sheltered him who had sworn to carry on guerrilla warfare for him in the Highlands. But there was no guerrilla warfare in the Highlands and no second campaign. Prince Charles spent the rest of his life traveling or writing to one European court after another. All turned him down, saying he had no judgment. He ended by drowning his sorrows in alcohol and sin and condemning his brother Henry, who had become a cardinal of the church and was therefore forbidden to produce descendants. It was a tragic ending to a magnificent story. If you ever go to Scotland, try to visit Glenfinian, where the Scots rallied to their true king, the last Catholic king of the English-speaking peoples, and try to visit the battlefield of Culloden in the north, where the Scots so bravely gave their lives for him or see the remote island in the northern seas near the Isle of Skye, where Flora MacDonald's is memorialized. There you too can commemorate Bonnie Prince Charlie, your last king. As a final footnote to Dr. Carroll's wonderful talk, I would simply mention that Bonnie Prince Charlie, along with his father, James III, and also his brother, Cardinal Henry, are interred together in the crypt of St. Peter's Basilica. And there's a beautiful Stuart monument on the main nave just off on the left side to commemorate the fallen house of Stuart. We have hope that Bonnie Charlie made it to heaven. He died a faithful Catholic, receiving the last rites of the church, and his brother, Cardinal Henry, saw to it that over 500 masses were said for the repose of the soul of the Bonnie Prince. Thanks for listening, and find out more about Christendom College at www.christendom.edu.